Well, preachers get cautions at times, either in seminary or in conferences, and one of the cautions that preachers have is against using sports metaphors and illustrations. After all, not everybody is a sports fan, not everybody likes sports, and so I won't use a sports illustration this morning. I'm going to use two. That way, I'm keeping the letter of the law. I am honestly not using one sports illustration. First, one of my heroes growing up was a Major League Baseball pitcher named Nolan Ryan. He's the only player in Major League history to have his uniform retired by three different teams. I could list all kinds of staggering statistics about Nolan Ryan, such as his record 5,714 strikeouts, or the fact that he threw his last no-hitter at the age of 44, and he threw his first one at the age of nine. Just a stellar career. But what always inspired me about Nolan Ryan, nicknamed the Ryan Express because of how hard he threw his fastball, but what, what always inspired me was the fact that he played Major League Baseball at a high level during parts of four different decades. That He started off in 1966 and finally retired in, in 1993 at the age of 46. But I can do even better. Even outdoing Nolan Ryan was a man by the name of Satchel Paige. Satchel Paige pitched his first professional baseball game in 1926 and his last professional baseball game in 1965. He pitched for the Kansas City Athletics against the Boston Red Sox at the age of 59, which is phenomenal. And so these are men that give us middle-aged guys hope. We look in the mirror and say, if they could do it, I still can. But suppose that I said to you, I am going tomorrow morning to try out for the Los Angeles Dodgers. You even laugh. Why, why do you laugh at that? You're making my point for me. You would say, that's ridiculous. That's audacious. That's preposterous. I've seen you throw. You throw like a girl, much less throw hard. Why is that ridiculous? Because I have, I have absolutely no, no background with which to offer proof that I can do that. I have nothing to back up that claim that I could pitch at a major league level, not one shred of evidence. But I want to show you this morning a claim that is even more outrageous, even more ridiculous. We have to back up all the way to the year 56 AD. The Apostle Paul had previously been to the city of Corinth and he'd ministered there for 18 months and he planted the first church there. And by now, uh, he's visited by a delegation from the church. And three men came to see Paul, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. 1 Corinthians 16 tells us this. And they're bringing two pieces of information to Paul. First of all, they're bringing some informal questions based on the concerns that they see in the church. And second, they're bringing formal questions that are brought to them from the whole church. And so Paul writes the church in what would be known as the letter of 1 Corinthians to answer some of these issues. Chapters 1 through 6, he addresses the informal concerns that are brought verbally by the delegation. And then, beginning in chapter 7, he addresses the formal questions that are sent by the church. 
They have questions about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage, about how to deal with food that's been offered to idols. He answers critics who question the spiritual authority. He answers questions about idolatry, about the authority structure in marriage, about the Lord's Supper, about spiritual gifts, about orderliness in the church, about worship gatherings. All of their questions he answers, which is, by the way, the biblical precedent for a pastoral Q&A. That's what 1 Corinthians is. But then he gets to 1 Corinthians 15. And in this section, he reminds the Corinthian believers of something that he taught them. He calls it something, quote, delivered to you as of first importance. It is the most important topic. And the topic is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, eventually, we will come to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. That's the seventh book of the New Testament, if you're not familiar with your Bible yet. You don't need to look at it yet. You might keep your finger there. But in this text, the Apostle Paul is going to make a claim that's even more ridiculous, even more outlandish, more daring, more audacious than a middle-aged man saying he's going to try out for the L.A. Dodgers. As a matter of fact, it's such a foolhardy and over-the-top claim that I don't want to go to it yet. I'm not sure you would believe it. And so I want to work our way to it. So to work our way toward that claim, I want to answer two questions today. The first question is, what do you need to know about the death of Christ? And the second question is, what do you need to know about the resurrection of Christ? What do you need to know about the death of Christ? And what do you need to know about the resurrection of Christ? And I primarily want to use the Old Testament to help us answer these questions. And I'm not going to ask you to turn to these passages because we're going to look at several of them. But first of all, what do you need to know about the death of Christ? We're just going to create a list. The first thing you need to know about the death of Christ is that it is a death that conquers Satan. It is a death that conquers Satan. Now, depending on how you date it, we look all the way back first to somewhere around the year 4 to 5,000 B.C. Adam and Eve have just rebelled against God. They have made what is literally the biggest mistake in the history of mankind. They rejected God's will for their lives and they, they threw his blessing and his kindness back into his face, which now, according to Romans 5, verse 12, has cursed all of mankind with a sin nature, has separated us from God And so God rightly pronounces curses on Adam and on Eve. But Satan, the serpent of old, was initially responsible. And so God curses Satan, the fallen angel, as well. And he says this to Satan in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head And you shall bruise his heel, meaning that Satan will bruise the heel of a coming seed of the woman, a coming savior, an injury of some sort that's not ultimately fatal or final. Already we're seeing a a little reference, a veiled reference to the resurrection, but for now we're talking about the death of Christ. But the offspring, the descendant of Eve, Jesus Christ, will bruise Satan's head. Sometimes it's translated will crush his head that that will be a fatal blow. So how is the death of Christ a fatal blow to Satan? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 calls Satan the prince of this world. Because of sin, God has temporarily given the world over to Satan. And that's what Satan wants. Endless power, endless control. As a matter of fact, 1 John 3 verse 10 says that as human beings, we are children of the devil. 
We were born in sin, we live sinful lives, and we will die in our sin. But because of the death of Christ, now more and more and more people are being transferred from being children of the devil into what 1 John 3.10 calls being children of God. In other words, Satan is losing ground because of the death of Christ. In fact, someday the Lord Jesus himself will finish this for once and for all. Revelation 20 verse 10 says that he will throw Satan, quote, into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is a death that defeats Satan. Here's something else you need to know. Second, it is a death that substitutes for sinners. It's a death that substitutes for sinners. Now, we leave the Garden of Eden in four or 5,000 B.C., and we fast forward to 1446 B.C., and the setting is Egypt. God's chosen people of Israel are about to be delivered from slavery in Egypt, but before they leave, both the Egyptians and the Israelites need to understand something. They need to understand that sin has consequences. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So the Egyptians learned that sin has consequences because God warns Pharaoh to relent from his stubbornness in not letting Israel go. He won't relent, and so the consequences will be the death of all the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But the Israelites are really no better. They too are sinners. They are not right with God either. But for them, graciously, on the night that God would go out to destroy the firstborn of every family, Israel is instructed to sacrifice a lamb. And the blood of this lamb will serve as payment instead of God taking their firstborn. And that for all the Israelite households who would sacrifice this lamb on the night of judgment, God would pass over their houses and thus instituting the Passover, a remembrance of God's mercy and judgment. But what was Passover ultimately pointing us to? What was that a picture of ultimately? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul proclaims that, quote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Passover had to be observed year after year after year after year because the blood of an animal cannot pay the price of sin for a human being made in the image of God. And so a human being, a perfect human being, had to be offered once for all. And all the way back in 1446 B.C., God started showing us this. Here's something else you need to know about the death of Christ. Third, it is a death that receives God's wrath. It's a death that receives God's wrath. Now, we leave Egypt now and move to Israel 450 years later. And we see King David, who is the hymn writer of Israel. And he's penning a a prophetic psalm which tells us about the death of Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, of course, is famous because these are the very words that Jesus said as he was dying on the cross. Now, some have said that Jesus, the last thing on his mind was that he wanted to quote that piece of poetry so that he could die with dignity. That's ridiculous. That's not the point. He wasn't quoting that poetry so he could die with dignity or so that people would think he was the Messiah He was quoting that psalm because it was written about him. And he was in the midst of having the wrath of God poured on him for the sin of all who would believe in him. And so, of course, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He wasn't asking for information. He already knew he is an omniscient God. He's simply expressing the brokenness of his heart. Romans 8 verse 3 says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. That as a human being in the flesh we deserve to have our sin condemned by God. So God sent Jesus as a human being to receive condemnation, to receive the wrath of God instead of you and instead of me. But we only have to look further in Psalm 22 to get more specifics about the death of Christ. Here's something else you need to know about the death of Christ. Fourth, it is a death by a specific crucifixion. It is a death by a specific crucifixion. Crucifixion, as you know, consists of taking a man and either binding or nailing his wrists to the cross beam of a cross, which is then placed on the vertical piece to which the feet are nailed. It's an excruciating way to die. Some victims in history have been recorded as having lived over a week on the cross before finally succumbing to death. But why do we say this is a death by a specific crucifixion, not just any crucifixion? Because the rest of Psalm 22 describes one crucifixion in particular, one specific event. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That tells us the very words that Jesus would cry out on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. Remember, this is written a thousand years before Christ. Well, Matthew twenty-seven thirty-nine says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That is sarcasm in Psalm 22, verse 8. Well, what did the people say who were all around Christ? Psalm, or Matthew 27, rather, beginning in verse 42 says, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The same sarcasm, the same words even. Psalm 22, verse 15. The psalmist says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. What is it? That's great, tremendous thirst. John 19, 28 records Jesus on the cross simply saying, I thirst. Psalm 22, verse 16. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Luke 24 confirms that when Jesus was crucified, his wrists were not just bound, they were nailed as were his feet to the cross. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. What does John 19, beginning in verse 23, record? When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. The death of Christ was death by a specific crucifixion. What else do you need to know about the death of Christ? Fifth, it is a death followed by a specific burial. It's a death followed by a specific burial. Now we move forward about 300 years to 700 BC to a time very familiar to us, the time of Isaiah. If you attend Grace Bible Church on Sunday evenings, we've been going through Isaiah for a number of months now. And again, 
all crucified people are buried, but Isaiah 53 tells of a specific burial. Following the death of Christ, there was a specific burial. Isaiah 53, verse 9, 700 B.C. says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, which was it? Did they make his grave with the wicked or did they make his grave with the rich man? We just recently studied Isaiah 53, 9, so this is familiar to you, and we made some discoveries together. First of all, they made means assigned his grave with the wicked. That is a plural word that means multiple wicked men and with a rich man, singular, in his death. This is an important distinction because in the Hebrew language, if Isaiah was simply making a comparison between different classes of people, the wicked and the rich, he would have used two singular nouns. But he uses a plural, wicked men, and a singular, a rich man. What does this mean? Well, we know the story. Jesus was originally assigned a shameful grave with two criminals that were crucified on either side of him. But instead, Jesus would receive an honorable burial. Matthew 27 tells us that the wealthy believer in Christ, Joseph of Arimathea, he gave Jesus his tomb in which to be buried. And so Jesus was assigned, given a grave with the wicked, but he was buried with a rich man in his grave, in other words. That makes this burial completely unique, completely one of a kind. There's never been one like it before and never been one like it since. It is totally unique. So the death of Christ, what do you need to know? You need to know that it's a death that conquers Satan, that substitutes for sinners, that receives God's wrath, that is a specific crucifixion and is followed by a specific burial. Well, we have a second question. What do you need to know about the resurrection of Christ? What do you need to know about the resurrection of Christ? Well, first of all, it's a resurrection of a real body. It's the resurrection of a real body. And we go back once more, all the way back to the ancient Near East in the early part of the second millennium B.C. Let's call it 2000 B.C. just to make it even. And we visit the home of a man named Job. And in the providential plan of God, God had allowed Job to have everything of value taken from him, his wealth, his children, his health. And now, if you've read the book of Job, you know the story. Job is in dialogue with several of his friends who they're offering their theories as to why suffering and pain exists. Sometimes Job gives a less than satisfactory answer to some of these questions that his friends bring. But sometimes by the power of God and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives answers that are not only stunning, but prophetic. And in chapter 19, we get one of these answers. He says that, that God is pursuing him to afflict him. But he does have assurance of one thing. And this is what he says. In Job 19, 25 and 26, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job says that he will see his Redeemer and appearing of God. Now, who is this Redeemer? Well, Colossians 1 verse 15 declares God to be an invisible God. God the Father is invisible. And it is only in the second 
member of the Trinity, that God makes himself visible, what Hebrews 1 calls the radiance of the glory of God. And so when Job says he will see his Redeemer, this is a living and breathing and very much alive Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not some sort of spiritual resurrection or symbolic resurrection or surreal resurrection. It was the actual body of Jesus being made alive, reborn, rejuvenated, and it was in this actual body, as Acts chapter 1 records, that Jesus ascended into heaven in the sight of many witnesses. And that is the body in which he entered heaven, setting a record. And what was that record? The first ever resurrected human being to enter into heaven. First one. Here's something else you need to know about the resurrection. Second, it is a resurrection that conquers death. It's a resurrection that conquers death. Now, we'll stay with Job's staggering statement here because we see this scene of Job uh, claiming that, that after his own death, he says, after my skin has been destroyed, he says, yet in my flesh... In a real and living body, he will look upon his Redeemer. What is this? Well, this is an Old Testament understanding that for the one who has true and genuine internal faith in the one true living God, death is not only not the end, it's just the beginning. And that beginning will happen in a resurrection body, a new body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't the first resurrection. There are numerous other resurrections recorded in Scripture, but it was the first permanent resurrection. All those others in the Bible who were raised from the dead, the sad thing is is that they had to die again. I'm not sure that was worth it. And apparently, when Jesus was raised from the dead permanently, he's simply the first of many in fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 calls the resurrection of Christ, quote, the first fruits of those who have died, that many, many more will follow him. In fact, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15 is specific as to who will follow him in resurrection. It says, those who belong to Christ. He's the key to the whole thing. Well, there's something else you might want to know about the resurrection. It is a resurrection that confirms the deity of Christ. It is a resurrection that confirms the deity of Christ. Job gives us another truth that the Redeemer is identified specifically as deity. He says, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Now, what's the logic here? The Redeemer that he says he will see can only be the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and immediately Job openly declares that person to be God. And this really makes sense because if Jesus is God, no grave can hold him. Jesus himself said that he gave up his own life and no one takes it from him. And even on the cross, he didn't die of asphyxiation as all other victims of crucifixion did. He simply died when he decided to. And the Roman centurion who was in charge of his execution knew that. When he saw that Jesus died with a loud cry, He said, truly, this must be the Son of God. Why? Because you don't die of crucifixion with a loud cry. You die because all the air is gone out of your lungs. Jesus died precisely when he wanted to. God is the very source and the essence of life. He's self-sustaining. He's self-powering. He's eternal. It's impossible for God not to exist. And so it follows then that the resurrection of God the Son 
is really the only logical outcome of his physical death. Here's a fourth piece of information about the resurrection of Christ. It is a resurrection guaranteed by the Father. It's a resurrection guaranteed by the Father. Now we go forward once again to about 1000 BC to the time of King David. David wrote prophetically of a statement made. This is a statement made by God the Son to God the Father. A statement of security and confidence. Listen to this. Concerning his own death. Psalm 16 verses 9 and 10 says this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And here's the reason why. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the Hebrew conception of the grave. It's just generally speaking the the place where the dead go. But I want you to know this, by the way. Jesus asserts his own deity. He calls himself the Holy One. And he says that he will not see corruption. He will not see decay. In other words, Psalm 16 not only predicts the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. And not only does it predict the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, it predicts that the resurrection of Christ would be very soon after his death. This isn't some sort of symbolic resurrection that's yet to happen. It happens soon. Well, how do we know this? Well, for the ancient Near Easterner, they had one way to know that a body was decomposing. They could smell it. An odor began to occur. This is one of the reasons for the practice of wrapping a body in in cloth uh, soaked in spices. And this smell begins to occur at about three or four days, full days after death. And this is even confirmed when Jesus came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead and buried for four days. Jesus commanded that the stone of his tomb be taken away because he was about to resurrect him. And Martha, Lazarus' sister, he protested. And she was very practical. And she said in John eleven thirty nine, 39, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Or as the King James Version amusingly puts it, by this time he stinketh. I love that. So not only does Psalm 16 give the Son of God a guarantee from his Father of resurrection, it is a guarantee that his resurrection will be in less than four days. Here's something else we need to know. It is a resurrection confirmed by witnesses. It's a resurrection confirmed by witnesses. We stay in the same time period, about 1000 B.C., and return to Psalm 22, which gives us such stunning detail about the specific crucifixion of Christ and we find that the man who's being crucified in Psalm 22 he tells us what's going to happen after his crucifixion and here's what he says Psalm 22 verse 22 I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you now wait a minute dead men don't go to their kinsmen to praise God but Jesus did For 40 days, he met with his disciples. We certainly see the shock of the disciples in Luke 24 when Jesus just appears in a closed room and his brave disciples were, quote, startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. Little girls, they didn't know what they were seeing. And so to prove that he was really there, what did he do? He showed them the scars on his wrists, the scars on his feet, 
And he said, here, give me a piece of fish. And he took a piece of fish and, nom, 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 and he ate it in front of them. He's saying, I'm really here. It is confirmed by witnesses. Here's something else for us to know. Sixth, it is a resurrection for future exaltation. It is a resurrection for future exaltation. We go forward once again to about 700 B.C. when Isaiah proclaims in chapter 53 about the crucified Savior. Verse 11 says that after his death, again, this is after the death of the Savior, he shall, quote, see and be satisfied. And verse 12 says that he'll receive this great reward, a reward of true believers and followers and kingdom subjects. Now remember that in 2000 BC, Job said that his Redeemer will stand upon the earth. What will the resurrected Lord be doing when he stands upon the earth, when he sees and is satisfied and has all of these around him that are his reward? Well, we go to 500 BC to the prophet Zechariah. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus ascended bodily into heaven from the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 14 says that in the future, the Lord Jesus will bodily descend once again to the earth. Verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. You ever flown in an airplane and when you came back, you got off on the same gate that you left in? This is what Jesus is doing. The Mount of Olives worked really well for the ascension. Why not come back to the same spot? Only this time, there won't be any Christmas carols being sung. We won't be singing, O little town of Bethlehem, because the Lord will be coming to battle against living armies arrayed against him. And what will the outcome be with a word? The Lord Jesus will strike dead all who come against him. Verse 12 of Zechariah 14 says this. And verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Which, by the way, in case you're wondering, is the entire point of the Bible. The Bible is not a feel-good book to get you through bad days. The Bible is a book that tells the story of a king by the name of Jesus Christ who was ordained before the foundation of the world to take and to rule and to enjoy a world that is his and for his glory with subjects brought in by the cross of Christ for all of eternity. That's what the Bible is about. What else do you need to know about the resurrection? It is a resurrection that proves complete payment for sin. Seventh, it is a resurrection that proves complete payment for sin. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that Christ was, quote, pierced for our transgressions. Another reference to crucifixion, by the way. Now, how do we know that Christ's payment was enough? How do we know this? Well, in the Old Testament... You had to sacrifice animals all the time, all the time. And there isn't a single recorded instance of somebody sacrificing an animal and all of a sudden that animal jumping up and coming back to life. Why? Because the payment wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. How do we know that Christ's payment was enough? Because God raised him up. And because God raised him up, proving that complete and total payment was made, This paved the way for you and for me to be justified, which means to be made righteous in the eyes of God, borrowing, as it were, the righteousness of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, verse 25, that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and, here it is, raised 
for our justification. That the wrath of God was fully satisfied in Christ and thus he raised him up never to die again. Well, there we have it. We see what you need to know about the death of Jesus Christ. It's a death that conquers Satan, 4000 BC. We saw that. It's a death that substitutes for sinners, 1446 BC. It's a death that receives God's wrath, 1000 BC. It's a death by a specific crucifixion, 1000 BC. And it's a death followed by a specific burial. We saw that in 700 BC. We also saw what you need to know about the resurrection of Christ. It's the resurrection of a real body, 2000 BC, that conquers death. 2000 BC confirms the deity of Christ. 2000 BC, guaranteed by the Father. 1000 BC, it's confirmed by witnesses. 700 BC, it is for future exaltation. 500 BC, and it proves the complete payment for sin. 700 BC. But just in case someone wants to doubt all of these obvious and overt and plain, unconcealed truths about the death and resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, penned by God himself, makes sure that we understand who this person is. The Old Testament also provides what theologians call types. They're foreshadowings, pictures of the death and resurrection of Christ. They're pictures placed within the narrative of the Old Testament which in retrospect, and most often with the confirmation of the New Testament, unmistakably point us to the death and resurrection of Christ. Let me just give you a couple. For example, Genesis 22 records a unique event in the Bible, an event in which God asks someone to do something he's never asked anybody to do before, and that is to sacrifice his own son. God asked Abraham to take his son Isaac, a teenager at the time, and to sacrifice him to God on an altar. Now, this presents a problem because God had also promised Abraham that it would be through Isaac that he would build a nation. So if Isaac is dead, then the promises of God are null and void and God is a liar. And so Abraham faithfully is about to plunge the knife into his son Isaac when God stops him. And Abraham had passed the test of obedience and God intervened. But here's an interesting note. This almost sacrifice took place on a specific hilltop, a place called Mount Moriah, which today is literally the most valuable piece of real estate on earth because it is the 37 acres known today as the Temple Mount. Just in the same place that Jesus preached. But what's even more intriguing is how the New Testament interprets Isaac's almost sacrifice. Hebrews 11 verse 19 says that because God had a promised that through Isaac a great nation would be born, and B, Isaac was to be killed, Abraham, quote, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, literally just a stone's throw from where Jesus Christ was buried and where he was raised. How about this picture from the middle of the 8th century B.C. by the prophet Hosea? Hosea is calling to a, a wayward and a sinful Israel to repent, to come back to God, that God is going to strike her with discipline, but then he's going to restore her. And listen to this odd picture that Hosea gives. This is just weird. Hosea chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up. 
How about this picture from the beginning of the 8th century B.C. in the life of the prophet Jonah? Jonah is trying to flee his duty to serve God, and God comes after him and eventually is going to sink the ship that Jonah's on. So Jonah understands that he has to go, and he tells the crew to throw him overboard so that God will relent. And so Jonah is tossed into the ocean. Jonah 1 verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now you have to understand in, in the ancient Near East, three days and three nights was a, a colloquialism. It was a popular expression to mean three days with the nights in between. It's like when you go on vacation for three days, you don't actually go for three days, you go for three days and two nights. But of course, we remember that from this watery grave, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. But then you see the greater purpose for this event. Where a man can go to certain death and then be brought back is now no longer new information. There has been a precedent given in Jonah. Jesus predicted in Matthew 12, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was a picture for them to understand. How about this picture? Now, this picture isn't named as such in the New Testament, but the similarities are so obvious that it's ridiculously clear, so it doesn't need to be named. Where else do we read about a man who is rejected by his own people? He's put into a grave-like pit. He's humiliated. He's brought up out of the pit to be later exalted so that he could forgive and save the very men who rejected him and put him in the pit in the first place so that he could bring them to his home and give them all that he has. Who is that? That is Joseph, of course. Genesis records his own brothers hating him and throwing him into an empty cistern, selling him into slavery in Egypt. And by God's providence, he, he rises to this position of second in command of all of Egypt, overseeing the feeding of the nation during the coming fam- famine. And during that time, he forgives and he saves his entire family from certain starvation And he brings them to this paradise-like land called Goshen to be with him. Now, if we really, really wanted to take time, I don't have time to do it. If we wanted to demonstrate the similarities, we would find in comparing Joseph and Jesus, if we wanted to take the time, we would find that both of them were beloved by their fathers. We would find that both of them were envied and despised without cause. That both of them foretold that one day they would be rulers, Both of them were sent by their fathers to seek their brother's good. Both were rejected and condemned to die. Both were stripped of their clothing. Both were thrown into a pit, alone and abandoned. Both were sold for silver into the hands of wicked Gentiles. Both were raised up out of a pit. Both were favored sons who instead became humble servants. Both had everything that they do prosper. Both resisted temptation successfully. Both of them were falsely accused. Both of them were numbered with transgressors. Joseph was falsely accused, put in prison. Jesus was falsely accused and executed. Both promised deliverance to a condemned man. Joseph 
promised deliverance to a man in prison. Jesus promised deliverance to a thief on the cross. Both foretold the future accurately. Joseph as God's prophet to Pharaoh and Jesus continually doing that. Both proved to be the greatest counselors ever. Pharaoh told Joseph in Genesis 41, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. And Isaiah calls Jesus wonderful counselor. Both were promoted to a position of glory and given a new name. Joseph was given the name Zephineth Panea in Genesis 41. Jesus is given the name that is above every name, Philippians 2. In fact, Jesus says that he'll be given a new name that will be told to all at a later time in Revelation 3. For both of them, all people are commanded to bow down to them. For both of them, they provide for all in need. Joseph provides grain during the famine. Jesus provides the bread of life to relieve spiritual hunger. For both of them, their own people did not recognize them for who they were. Joseph's brothers didn't know him. And Jesus' own disciples, they, they couldn't grasp that he was from the Father. Each of them allowed his own people to suffer for a time until they repented. Joseph, his own brothers, and Jesus said there would be a time of great tribulation for his people until they repent. Both would eventually reveal themselves to their people and reconcile with them. Joseph would say, I am Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And verse 14 of Genesis 45 says his brothers wept over him. Jesus in Zechariah 12.10 says that Israel will someday look on him whom they have pierced and they will weep bitterly over him. But we don't have time to make those comparisons. I've explained to you what you need to know about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but it may be occurring to you that I'm explaining in detail the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from texts which took place or were written in some cases thousands of years ago. That the crucifixion death of Christ is described in detail a thousand years before his birth. And by the way, it's described 400 years before the Persians even invented crucifixion and before the Romans perfected it. Not to mention the fact that Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. John 2, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. John 10, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, by the way, who resurrected Jesus? Jesus did. Jesus even predicted the events that would lead to his own death. In Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. After Jesus appeared on the mountain with several of his disciples and he appeared in this glorified form, a transfigured form, he told those few disciples very matter-of-factly that they have to keep that secret for a time being when could they tell everyone that they saw well jesus told them in matthew 17 verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain jesus commanded them tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead so jesus himself predicted this now what is the audacious ridiculous 
preposterous claim that the Apostle Paul is going to make in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to claim that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has already been known long, long, long before even the birth of Christ, which has a massive and gigantic and enormous implication that what Paul is going to say cannot be wrong. It is airtight. There is no possibility of error. It is what is of first importance. Now let's hear this claim in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, here it is, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. This is a word that means according to, exactly as how it's been predicted. It's precise. Meaning that God has been telling humanity about this event when we get to Paul's time for at least 4,000 years and it happened exactly as foretold. Exactly. Listen. The death and resurrection of Christ wasn't simply the greatest guess in the history of mankind. It was planned. It was ordained by God. It was revealed to the writers of the Old Testament and it was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And by the way, just to make sure we grasp that this audacious claim about the resurrection of Jesus Christ must be true. Look with me at verse 5. He goes on to say, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, he gives this quick short list Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Jesus appeared to all the disciples as a group. They're nicknamed the Twelve, even though Judas Judas was dead. He appeared to more than 500. And he says, most of them are alive. Just look them up and ask them. He appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus. He appeared once again to all the apostles. And after his ascension into heaven, he appeared to the apostle Paul. Now, I've asked two questions. What do you need to know about the death of Jesus Christ and what do you need to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ but those two questions now necessitate a third question given the fact that Paul has just backed up the most stunning claim in history third question is what do you need to do about it what do you need to do about it and that depends on what category you fall into if you fall into the category of those who know Christ as Savior and that you regularly experience the victory and the joy and the peace that we have in the Lord, could I encourage you to let the renewed knowledge of this audacious claim of the Apostle Paul that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has zero chance of being wrong, can I encourage you to let that do what the New Testament tells us so many times, to love the Lord still more? Hebrews 10.25 tells us to meet together to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4 that they're, they're so loving, they're so kind, they're so delightful to one another because of Christ. But he says, we urge you brothers, do this more. Do it more. In, in other words, don't coast in your walk with the Lord. Don't coast Build on that resurrection victory. Learn more. Memorize more. Mentor others more. Give more. Serve more. 
and have a crescendo of obedience to your final day on this earth. Maybe you're in the category of those who know Christ as Savior, but you seem to lack that victory and joy and peace that you seem to see others having, that you're continually defeated by your own sin or self-condemnation or, or maybe your painstakingly slow spiritual growth. The Apostle Paul said that he desired to know, quote, the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10, that this is what enables him to share in the sufferings of Christ. Peter tells us to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that, that the power of God through the Spirit of God, purchased by the resurrection of God, is plenty, it is plenty of power. There's really no reason for a Christian not to walk in victory. There's no reason for us to walk around spiritually defeated all the time because the power that raised Christ literally dwells in you. That's a phenomenal thought. That's a stunning thought. You might find yourself in the category of those who hear this and, and you want to respond. You're, you're not a Christian, but you, you, you think you might want to be. Could I just encourage you that God's word is just as good for you and for your death and resurrection as it was for Christ's death and resurrection? In fact, here near our text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's the caveat here? You must be in Christ. But could I encourage you that, that Christ is the prototype? He's the proof of God's ability to destroy your own death and that like Job, you will see God with your own eyes in the flesh. In fact, Jesus himself made this guarantee. He said in John 6, verse 40, and you can take this to the bank, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That the prototype, the first one to be permanently resurrected will now turn and he will take hold of you and pull you out of the grave just as he pulled himself out of the grave. If I could offer that comfort, just ask God for mercy. Just tell him that you want to be resurrected too that you want to have your sins forgiven and that you need Christ. But you might find yourself in the category, category of those who hear this and you simply choose not to respond. Maybe you think your own good works will save you, but then the death of Christ is pointless if that's the case. Then I have one word for you and that is that you just need to understand something. You need to understand that you have been warned because not only does Scripture with pinpoint accuracy tell us of Jesus Christ the Savior, Scripture with pinpoint accuracy tells us of Jesus Christ the Judge. And if the Old Testament that miraculously, accurately concern, uh, gives our information concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if the Old Testament does that, just understand that you have chosen to reject the certain word of God in which Christ also says to all who will not receive him, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is so clearly revealed in the scriptures and my prayer for you is exactly, exactly what Jesus himself said to his own disciples. 
Remember I told you about when he was resurrected and to prove that he was resurrected in a real body, that it was really him, that, that, that he allowed his disciples to see his scars and he even grabbed a piece of fish and ate some fish in front of them? Well, let me tell you what he said right after that. Luke 24 records, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, before my death, before my resurrection, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The claim that Jesus died and was raised from the dead is an audacious claim because there is literally no possibility that it is not true. And so, for me and for you, we are left with no excuse whatsoever. The only right response is to worship Christ by repenting, by turning from sin, and asking for the forgiveness that's purchased by his death and for the justification that is purchased by his resurrection. Won't you do that today? Our Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this sure and certain word that Jesus was not just some guy who showed up and kind of did some good things and said some neat things and developed a following and then disappeared one day and somebody made up a story about him. No, he did die. He died an actual death. He was buried in a tomb without air in it. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. This is verified by hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. It is verified by the fact that you predicted this as early as 6,000 years ago. And so there is no possibility that the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ cannot be true. And so, Lord, we would first of all pray for those who love Christ, who know him, that we would love him all the more, that we would serve him all the more, that our gratitude for his death to pay for our sin and for his resurrection, which gave us justification before you, making us righteous before you, that our gratitude would just grow and grow and grow until that final day when we breathe our last and we, we rejoice as we leap into heaven filled with the joy and the glory of our Savior. And Lord, traditionally on Resurrection Sunday, some will sense the compelling need to go to church. And it's our prayer for them, Lord, that on this day, if they do not know Christ as Savior, that the Word of God has penetrated their heart and that they would humble themselves to come to the Savior who openly receives them, who gives salvation without cost, without price to those who would simply ask for mercy. That is our prayer and that is our hope. All so that Christ Jesus, who is and will be the King of kings and Lord of lords, who will reign on this earth with countless millions of worshipers and kingdom subjects, all so that he might receive glory, so that he might receive the honor. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.